Good morning, Highland Church family. My name's Pastor Andrew. I'm excited to preach a message from Colossians 4 this morning. And as we get started, I want to bring your attention to a news headline that I encountered a couple weeks ago that succinctly stated U.S. church membership falls below the majority for the first time. Now, this research was published from a reputable research organization known as Gallup, and the research found that only 47% of U.S. adults belong to a church or a synagogue or a mosque as of 2020. And that was down from 70% in as late as 2000. So there's been a dramatic change over the last 20 years of religion affiliation within our country. And by all accounts, this is just proving the trend that we're seeing that our culture is becoming increasingly secularized as it is changing in recent decades. As more people are identifying as religiously unaffiliated, those of us who are Christ followers are increasingly finding ourselves feeling at odds with the culture that we live within. And that's really surfacing attention within the hearts of Christ followers as to how we can be in the world, but not of the world. What is the right relationship between our faith and our culture? How do we integrate our Christianity with the greater American culture that we live within? And that's a really important question for us to answer. And we need to realize this morning that there are a lot of different models present within American Christianity answering that tension of how to integrate one's faith, one's Christianity with one's experience within the culture. And I want to start this morning by just sharing a few of those different models that are very popular and present within the American church. First of all, is a model that I call the chameleon Christian. And as the name states it, you can probably figure out what that one looks like. This would be a person who sees that there is a major division between their Christianity and the culture. There's a wall between the two, between the sacred and the secular. And this is a person who sees that Sunday morning is completely separate from the other six and a half days of the week. And they live in two entirely different spheres. This is a person who, when they're with the church crowd, they look and sound like the church crowd. They know the worship songs, they know the liturgy, they know the vocabulary, but then when they go out into the culture, everything changes. They take off their church hat, they put on their culture hat, their verbiage, their actions, their behaviors, their values adapt and they blend in with the culture. In a very real sense, they function like a chameleon that just changes its appearance and changes the way it looks to blend in with whatever culture it fits within. That is one model that's becoming increasingly popular within American Christianity. Here's a second model. I call this one the consumer Christian, consumer Christianity. The consumer Christian views Christianity merely as a commodity to improve their lives. It's gained steam as the prosperity gospel has continued to spread, and this model really focuses on the question, what can Jesus do for me? How can Jesus improve my life in the culture? So Christianity becomes a way of going out, getting some commodities, getting some goods, bringing it back into our normal life and saying, how can this make my desired life better? It's like treating our, our, our church attendance almost like having a membership to Sam's Club. 
right? So we're a, a paying member. We want to go in, pick and choose the commodities that we want to make our life better, and then leave and be able to bring that back to our everyday life. It's a Christianity that's about bettering my life, not about being part of the body of Christ or serving my spiritual community. That brings us to a third model. This one's called monastic Christianity. It's a person who has a desire to completely withdraw from culture. So there's the idea that there is literally no involvement with the culture whatsoever. This is a model that centers on an absolute us versus them mentality. You know, this was a model that gained uh, a lot of attraction and followers in the early 20th century. With the rise of evolution being taught in schools and the secularization of the sciences, this really gave rise to kind of the, the fundamentalist movement that uh, really embodied this monastic Christianity. The idea is we want to withdraw completely from the culture. We want to create safe spaces and wall ourselves in. And there's really no interaction. There's no movies. There's no secular music. There's no engaging in politics. We just want to completely wall ourselves off and go back to monastic Christianity. Then there's a, a fourth model. I call this one the, the legislative Christian. This model views Christianity as the rightful ruler over culture. And it's a model that sees the church's highest priority as controlling culture through political pressure, power, and influence. However, this model has increasingly led to a blurring of political affiliation and Christianity. And winning the culture wars becomes the highest goal, displacing making disciples of Jesus Christ for the church. And that brings us to a fifth and final model. I call this one the activist Christian. This is a Christian who sees an overlap between Christianity and culture, but only to a certain extent. This is a person who focuses only on the horizontal implications of the gospel without ever addressing the vertical implications. The, the chief goal of this model is to bring about the social justice that we see within scripture to make a better culture, a just society for all people. However, it does it at the expense of ever talking about the vertical components of the gospel. There's no talk or discussion about sin or righteousness or repentance or faith. It just focuses on the horizontal societal implications. And you know, as we look around at American Christianity, we can see evidence of each and every one of these models. They are incredibly common. But the problem is, according to scripture, none of these models will do. They really all fail to live up to the Christ-centered approach of integrating our faith into the realm of everyday life. I think contrarily, Scripture would show us, rather than all of these models, we need to have a salt and light model. I know it's not the most memorable, but I just wanted to use the words directly from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. We need to be salt and light Christians. We are called to transform our culture literally from the inside out. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ, taking the hope of the gospel into the brokenness and darkness of a world without Christ. And notice some of the key features of this model. First of all, we are called to live within culture. 
Withdrawing and walling ourselves off from culture is not an option. We cannot be a light to the darkness if we withdraw completely from the darkness ourselves. We are behind uh, the wall. We are within culture and we are called to be a transforming element from the inside out. But notice a second identifying feature. We are still identifiably different than our culture. Even though we are within the culture, we are noticeably different. And our culture recognizes there is something different and unique about us. When I think of this, I like to think of it as we are almost, uh, we're, we're citizens of a different kingdom. And even though we live in the kingdom of this world, we're here with passports and we are just behind enemy lines. We're living in this culture uh, on business visas, doing business work for King Jesus. So yes, we are part of this culture. However, we're not citizens of this culture. And because of that, people can see that there is something unique and different about us. But third, realize in this model, we are called to be agents of change. We're called to be influencers for Jesus. Our goal is never to blend in and fly under the radar. Our goal is to see lives, communities, cities, and cultures impacted and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're ambassadors for him and making disciples is our highest priority. That is our calling to be agents of spiritual change. We're called to make an eternal impact right here in our culture for Jesus and his kingdom. And just pause and think this moment, this morning, if every Christian really embodied this model and this perspective, how different our cities, our communities, our culture, and our country would be. Just even stop and think if every Christ follower at Highland took serious this calling, how transformed our culture right here within the greater Wausau area could be. So this morning, we are going to be challenged to get serious about our calling to be salt and light. And to help us live out that calling, we're going to look at a practical uh, passage right out of Colossians chapter 4 that's going to show us four different ways that we can be salt and light within our community. So let me go ahead and read Colossians 4 verses 2 through 6. This is a section where Paul is really uh, closing out the book of Colossians with some practical applications for the church. Here's what he says. Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, the gospel, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Make the best use of the time and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. As we look at these verses, we're going to chunk uh, the passage into four sections that give us four ways that we can be salt and light within our culture. We need to pray persistently, build bridges, walk wisely, and scatter salt. Let's consider the first one. We are called to pray persistently. In this passage, Paul starts off with a strong command for the Colossian believers. He says, you need to continue steadfastly, devotedly in your prayer lives. Paul is saying, hey, if you want to be a kingdom influencer, then prayer has to be a defining characteristic of your life. 
But here's the thing that we need to realize. If prayer is going to be a defining characteristic of our lives, then we need to make sure that we view prayer as an essential component rather than an optional amenity in our everyday lives. Just think about those two words for a moment, an essential component versus an optional amenity. Think about a car with me for a moment. When you have a car, right, you have different parts that would be called essential pieces for the car to operate properly. Something like your transmission, right? If you don't have a working transmission, you're not going anywhere. It is an essential piece to your vehicle properly functioning. But then there are some pieces that might be optional amenities. They're nice to have, but they're not really essential. An example might be remote start for your car. Now, I kind of wish it was an essential living in Wisconsin. My car doesn't have remote start, so maybe I will go for that optional amenity next time I get a car, right? But, but if you don't have remote start, you can still get to point A to point B very, uh, very effectively, but it is a nice amenity on those negative 10 degree winter days, right? To be able to start your car from inside the house, let it warm up, that's a nice thing to do. But then the reality is there are many days out of the year where that feature goes unused and you don't really need it. Using that metaphor, I think a lot of Christians treat their prayer life like remote start on their spiritual lives. It's great for the really bad days. And then you can turn to it, you can use it, it's great, it's wonderful, but then there's a lot of days throughout the year where you don't use it. Rather than seeing it as an essential that moves your, prayer, your spiritual life forward, and that's the transmission that keeps you moving in your faith, it's just that nice amenity to turn to on the really bad and tough days. But scripture argues vehemently that prayer is an essential to the Christian life. God has an expectation all throughout his word that his people are prayerful people. And why is that? Why is prayer so vital if we are going to be kingdom influencers? Well, it's because we can do nothing apart from the transforming work of God in people's lives and hearts. The only person who can soften a hardened heart is the Lord. The only person who can grieve a person for their sin is the Lord. The only person who can cultivate spiritual growth is the Lord. It's never through our giftedness, our power, or our obstinance that culture is going to be transformed. It's only by God powerfully working in the hearts and lives of individual people that we will ever see a culture transformed for the gospel. If we're going to be effective kingdom influencers for Christ in our culture, it starts with viewing prayer as an essential in our spiritual lives. Prayer is the fuel of spiritual revival. And that has really been the model throughout church history. I mean, think all the way back to when Jesus was shaking up his culture, when he was going around and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven and a word of repentance. What was Jesus constantly doing? Withdrawing to go and pray over the ministry and pray for God to continue to use him. When we look at the early church in the book of Acts, what were they constantly doing early on as they were impacting their culture for Christ? They were devoted to prayer. As we read Paul's epistles, what did Paul regularly do for his churches and his disciples? He says, I pray fervently over you. And all throughout church history, we can see that every major revival within a culture has been fueled by prayer. I think of an amazing revival that took place in America in the 1960s. During this time period, it's estimated that over a million people 
were converted to Christianity and joined a church. And literally, historians can trace this back to a prayer meeting that began in New York City. There was a, a businessman who worked in Manhattan who was disillusioned with the brokenness of culture and wanted to start a prayer meeting for the city. And the first few days that he started this, it was during the lunch hour, during the business times uh, down in Manhattan, only a few people came and, and prayed with him. But over the coming months, there was a huge stock market crash. A lot of people were disillusioned and were looking for hope. They started looking for Christ. And by the end of that year, over 10,000 business men and women were gathering each and every day to pray over the city. And revival started to break out. I mean, how amazing is that? And what kind of revival could break out across our country if Christ followers really prayed persistently and treated prayer like an absolute essential rather than an optional amenity in our spiritual lives. And Paul tells us how we can increase the persistency of our prayer in this passage too. He says we need to fuel our prayer lives with two things, spiritual urgency and thanksgiving. He says, be watchful in prayer, always with gratitude, with thanksgiving. First of all, think about that first idea of watchfulness, of spiritual urgency. Paul is really saying that as Christians, we need to be watchful for the return of Christ. That's what he's talking about. He says, as Christians, we understand that Jesus could come back at any moment. And there are numerous passages in scripture that remind us we never know when Jesus might return. It might be in a century. It might be in a decade. It might be tomorrow. We don't know. And that idea of being on the cusp of eternity and never knowing when Jesus might return, it fuels us to be living faithfully and to pray for God to continue to impact and transform our culture before Christ returns. It reminds us that we can never grow lazy or lethargic in our spiritual lives. And not only that, but it governs the type of things that we're praying for. If Jesus really were to come back tomorrow, wouldn't we be praying for as many people as possible to get on the bus of salvation before it departs for the station? Wouldn't we be praying that we would be living lives of no regrets if Jesus returned? Wouldn't we be praying that we wouldn't miss an opportunity to share the gospel with a friend, a coworker, or a neighbor? And wouldn't we be praying for endurance to live faithfully until Jesus returns or calls us home? The reality that Jesus could come back at any minute should fuel us to pray that as long as he delays, we are transforming our culture with the gospel. But notice Paul also says that we need to pray with the heart of thanksgiving as well, and thanksgiving will fuel our prayer lives. As we regularly and honestly reflect on all that Jesus has done in our lives, it should lead us to persistent prayer. We have so much to be grateful for in Jesus. We have so much to give thanks to God for each and every day. And the more that we cultivate that gratitude, the more we are in turn going to pray and thank him for all that he's done. There's a lot more we could discuss about prayer this morning, but that's all we have time for. So let's move on to the next section in our passage. Paul moves in this next section from a general exhortation to be persistently praying to a specific prayer request that's near to his heart. And as we look at this prayer request in verses 3 and 4, we can quickly see that Paul has a constant hunger to share the gospel with the lost. He's always looking for an open door to build a relationship and point other people to Jesus. Let's think of our second principle this way. If we're going to be salt and light in our culture, we need to build bridges. We need to build bridges. Notice the content of the prayer request that Paul shares with the church at Colossae. 
He asked them to pray for God to open a door for him to share the gospel, which is how he ought to speak. Now think of how astounding this prayer request is. Remember where Paul is. By this time, Paul is in prison and he has been in prison for probably a couple of years. And notice what he does not ask them to pray for. Paul doesn't say, pray for me to get out of prison. Paul doesn't say, hey, pray for more money to come in so I can pray for my prison stay. Paul doesn't say, hey, pray for more luxurious accommodations or hey, pray for my hardships in life to be lessened. Paul doesn't pray for any of those things. He says, I want you guys to pray for one more opportunity for me to go and share the gospel with those who are lost and need to know about Jesus. When Paul dreams of life after prison, he dreams not of a softer bed, not of eating at his favorite restaurant, not getting back to his leisure activities and hobbies. He says, I'm dreaming of getting back to making more disciples for Jesus. He's a man who truly understood what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And as I was thinking about that this week, I got to tell you, I was a little convicted. Because for a lot of us, this past year has felt like a metaphorical prison, right? We haven't been able to go about our normal routines. And when I stopped and thought, what have I been most excited for to get back to after this season ends? Can I say Like Paul, it's about getting back to making disciples of Jesus Christ and sharing the gospel. For how many of us, it's been getting back to our normal patterns and routines within our culture, getting back to enjoying the amenities and the comfort of just living everyday life. Paul was fervent for sharing the gospel and building bridges because he knew that his identity was a Christ follower and with that came the calling of making disciples. He knew that what Jesus said, he meant when Jesus said, hey, if you want to follow me, I'm calling you to be a fisher of men. To follow is to fish. Followers of Jesus are called to be fishers for Jesus. At Highland, our core values are simple. Connect, grow, and go. I want us to think about that last value, go. We cannot make disciples if we are not willing to go out into our culture with the goal of being salt and light. We cannot be content with being chameleon Christians that whenever we're out in our culture, we have the dimmer switch on our spiritual light and we just dim that and hope we don't stick out in the culture and we fly under the radar. But likewise, we cannot be salt and light Christians if we are withdrawing and walling ourselves off from the culture and we're refusing to go out and engage people for Jesus. Christ followers are called to build bridges, not walls. But sadly, I think a lot of churches are far more known for the walls they've built to keep the culture out than the bridges they've built to engage their culture for the gospel. Are we bridge builders? Are we followers who are fishers for Christ? Because our culture will never be impacted for the gospel if Christians continue to prioritize building walls over spiritual bridges. Let Highland be one of the best bridge builders in town. And and that really forces us to ask the question, how can we build spiritual bridges? Well, the reality is there is no cookie cutter approach to building a relational bridge to influence another person for Christ. 
When I think about this concept, my mind immediately went to one of my favorite places I got to visit when I was in Scotland a few years ago. It's just a place called Three Bridges. And in this narrow area over this, this river, this lake area, there are three different bridges that were built at three different times, and they are very different from one another. They have very different outward appearances, very different facades. They were from different eras. They have different construction materials. But... The bridges all accomplish the same ultimate goal. They're helping a person get from one side to the other. Though they look differently and they're different designs, they all have the same essential function. And that's a good analogy for us because we are all going to build spiritual bridges with our culture in different ways. God has given us different personalities, different gifts, different passions, even different hurtful experiences in our life that can allow us to have rapport and build connections with other people that one of us might not have been able to build a connection with. So we need to lean into those areas that God has prepared us to be a bridge builder with other people. And with that in mind, I think Paul also gives us a couple of other ideas from verses two through three of how we can be good bridge builders. First, if we want to be a good spiritual bridge builder, I mean, This is simple, but we have to cultivate relationships with non-believers. Remember, Paul's praying, hey, I want to get out of prison so I can make more disciples of Jesus Christ. And the obvious implication is this, you you can't really impact a culture if you're not engaging the culture. You can't make disciples if you don't have interaction with anyone who's not already a disciple of Jesus. If we have no relationships with people who don't yet believe in Christ in their lives, it's time to grow our friend group. I mean, I think of the model of Jesus. He's regularly befriending people who are not yet spiritually engaged. Now, he never did it in a way that compromised his values and his morals, but Jesus was always sympathetic to reach out and build relationships with people who didn't yet know him. We need to build spiritual and relational bridges with people who are not yet part of our church community. But second, we need to pray for open doors to engage people in spiritual conversations. When was the last time we prayed for God to give us an opportunity to share our faith? When was the last time we prayed for an opportunity in a conversation with a friend or a coworker or a family member to be able to pivot this, the conversation into a, a deeper and more spiritual conversation? But we can't just stop at praying. The third thing is that we need to walk through those open doors when they're presented in front of us. We have the courage to walk through them. If we're looking for an excuse to not bring up Jesus in the gospel, we will find one every single time. But when God gives us an open door, we have to have the courage to walk through. I remember the, a story of a professor that I had in my, well, my seminary classes. And he was telling us of a time that he had been praying for an opportunity to share the gospel that day. And he went in to purchase something at a gas station. And he felt God placing it on his heart to witness to the person behind the counter. But he thought, no, that's not really the right time. This isn't an open door. I, I'll just, I'm not going to share this. And he decided not to. And then the person literally behind him in line goes up and does the exact thing. That person goes and shares the gospel, witnesses, and the person just breaks down and says, that's what I've been searching for and gave their life to Christ. And that was like a, a resounding moment for him where he thought, I've been praying for opportunities and here was an open door and I refused to walk through it and somebody else got to harvest. You know, in that moment, we need to have the courage to walk through those doors And lastly, we need to be ready to share the gospel with clarity. We can't be a good bridge builder if we can't clearly direct 
people to the destination of where they need to go. If we can't show them what the gospel is and where it takes them and who Jesus is, we're not going to be effective bridge builders. So if we want to be salt and light in a transforming presence for Christ in our culture, we have to accept our call to build spiritual bridges with the lost. But then in verse 5, Paul gives us a third action step. He tells us that we need to walk wisely in the midst of an unbelieving culture. We need to walk wisely. You know, there's two wings of the, the airplane of our Christian witness. There's our walk and our words, and we must have both. We have to speak the gospel, but we also have to live out the gospel. And if we want to make an impact for Christ in our culture, we need to make sure that we are living a life that accurately reflects who Jesus is to a culture that knows very little of Jesus. In scripture, the word walk is really an all-encompassing term that really refers to really the totality of our lives. I think of what Paul said at the beginning of Colossians in Colossians 1.10. He says, we need to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then what does that mean? This, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So walking wisely really means we're bearing spiritual fruit. We're diving deeper into our knowledge of God and we are rightly reflecting a life that shows that the gospel has transformed me from the inside out. And when we do that, it's a lifestyle that is desirable and compelling. It's a lifestyle that causes other people to pause and think, I want what they have. Why am I missing out on this? Because Christians can champion an alternative approach to life that the world can't offer. We can show a life that offers peace in the midst of stress and unknown circumstances. We can show a lifestyle of, of having enduring and intimate marriages in an age of divorce and self-centered dating. We can show a, a life of encouraging life-giving speech in a culture of negativity and complaint and gossip. We can show compassion and empathy for the hurting in a culture that marginalizes the, the, the outcasts. We can show financial stewardship and generosity in a culture of materialism and debt. And ultimately, we can show vulnerability and authentic community to a world that's plastic, photoshopped, and fake. Our walk is oftentimes the first impression of Christianities that outsiders get. And we really need to pause and ask, the way I'm walking, what does it show them about Jesus? Am I giving a compelling advertisement for a Christ-centered life? Or is there a dead-end sign over my, my life as they look at my walk? In this verse, Paul reminds us that our walk is always being watched by non-Christians. And you know, I fear that many people in our culture are rejecting Jesus, not because they found Jesus uncompelling, but they found our presentation of Jesus uncompelling. A lot of Christians walk in a way that give a distorted carnival mirror reflection of who Jesus actually is. Rather than speaking, living, and loving like Jesus, they see different presentations. Our culture sees commercialism Jesus, or therapist Jesus, or condemnation Jesus, or angry political Jesus, or powerless Jesus who doesn't make any change in my life. We need to do better. We need to walk in a way that truly shows the amazingness of who Jesus is. I think of Psalm 1 that tells us, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. If we want to walk wisely, we need to walk differently than the world. 
We need to delight in the law of the Lord and we need to spend more time with Jesus. And the more we see how amazing he is, the more the Holy Spirit can work in our hearts to conform us to the image of Jesus. Well, one final way that Paul tells us we can impact our culture for Christ is this. We need to walk wisely, but not only that, we also need to scatter salt. That's what we see as our fourth principle in verse, verse six. We need to have salty speech. We need to scatter salt. What does salt do? What does salt do? There are many things it does, right? It preserves, it adds flavor. It does many different things, but first and foremost, one of the biggest things it does, it makes us thirsty. I always think of the old adage, you can't force a horse to drink, but you can always sow its salts, right? And the idea is if you put salt in the uh, salt, I think I said that wrong there, salt the oats. There we go. You can't force a horse to drink, but you can salt its oats. And even though you can't force it to drink, if you add salt to the oats, you will make it thirsty so it wants to drink on its own. Our words should leave people thirsty for Jesus. The way that we converse with other people should be winsome, gracious, compelling, and different than the way that our world speaks. Our culture is a desert. It's hopeless. People are feeling isolated, lonely, depressed. And we have the opportunity to bring refreshment, encouragement, and hope through the way that we speak and engage our culture. So this morning, if we ran our words through a filter, and that filter filtered out anything that wasn't gracious, life-giving, and refreshing, how many of our words would be left? If we want to influence our culture and we want to be salt and light, then we need to make sure that we are using our words in a way that is life-giving, winsome, and encouraging. This verse is ultimately telling us that we as Christ followers need to have great conversation skills. Literally, one interpretation of seasoned with salt is not be boring and uncompelling. (laughs) Seasoned with salt means that we have flavorful conversations that draw people in and make them thirsty for what we have and thirsty for Christ. Some ways that we can do that. I mean, the biggest one is just this. We need to learn to ask good questions and really have a heart to get to know other people. So many people I think could be one for the gospel if we paused and slowed down from our busyness and genuinely engaged people and said, I want to know you. Help me to understand you better. Let me hear your story. What difference uh, has Christ made in your life? And just learning to ask good questions. Not only that, we need to learn how to share compelling visions of the Christ-centered life. We need to never miss an opportunity to brag about Jesus. That's one of my favorite things that Pastor Dave does. He loves sharing stories of how God's at work. And every time he shares a story, what does he leave us with? A deeper hunger and thirst for Christ and the transformation that's taken place in other people's lives to be true in our life. Never miss an opportunity to brag about Jesus. Another way that we can scatter salt is by just being kind and affirming the great things we see in other people. When we see God doing a work, when we see a person stepping towards maturity, when we see someone making a Christ-centered decision, just pausing and affirming and saying, man, I, I see Christ at work in your life. I see God doing a transformational work. That is life-giving. And that can produce an amazing hunger and thirst within someone's soul to continue pursuing Christ. Our goal for making disciples sometimes can be easy. Scatter salt. 
All we have to do is say, how can I walk away from this conversation, leaving this person a little thirstier for the gospel and Jesus than I found them? So those are four principles for how we can be salt and light in our culture. We need to pray persistently. We need to build bridges. We need to walk wisely and we need to scatter salt. So as we close out this morning, I just want you to think very intentionally this morning, which model of Christianity do you most align with that we've discussed? Are you a chameleon Christian, a consumer Christian, a monastic Christian, a legislative Christian, an activist Christian, or are you a salt and light Christian? And how can we be salt and light in our community this week, in the coming weeks, and the months ahead? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity that you have given us to be your ambassadors in our culture. We recognize that we are in a ever-changing culture. It's secularizing. It's looking increasingly less like the priorities and values that you outline in your word, but rather than being filled with fear and apprehension, allow that just to fuel our hearts with even more fervor and more passion and more desire to be salt and light and be a transforming presence in our culture. The greatest need for our world is the gospel of Jesus Christ and lives impacted by a relationship with your son. So allow us to be prayerful, allow us to be building bridges, allow us to walk wisely, and allow us to leave people thirstier for Christ. Thank you for using us, calling us, and equipping us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.